Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome from Start to Scale. Today's guest is Rami Esad, co-founder and CEO of Finmark and former co-founder and CEO of Distilled Networks. We've been friends for uh, for a long time now and excited to have you on the show. You know your stuff inside and out. This is uh, this is your third company and uh, you just got Finmark acquired, so excited to dive a little bit more into that, but excited to dive in with Rami. This is going to be a, a jam-packed show. Can't wait to, to dig in. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's been over a decade now, really, you know, long, long time friendship indeed. Yeah, it has been fantastic. We met through the Techstars Network way, uh, right. way back when. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. when Distill was just kind of hitting the ground. That's, that's good. So let's let's start with Distill. I th- can you can you share the story of Distill from the lens of the sales team, from kind of that inert early finding product market fit all the way through through scale, kind of that transition out of founder led sales and and into kind of figuring out those early scaling days. Yeah, so Distill was a, a, an enterprise security product. We sold into the mid-market and, and enterprises. We did web application security, detecting bots versus real people. Early on, we were trying to figure out sales and nothing was really working. And it wasn't until we started getting qualified leads that I was able to start closing some more deals, right? Outbound sales just didn't, didn't work well for us at first, but we, when we started getting some people that were qualified, we, we were able to start closing quickly. And, and early on, I, I, we weren't sure what the right ICP profile was. We didn't think, we didn't do a good job of, of qualifying the right buyer. So I actually experimented. I hired two people that I thought could be really good potential leaders. And I brought one and I had him handle inside sales for the mid-market. And I had one try to go after enterprise sales. And as an early stage security company, right, with like not a lot of brand recognition, the mid-market person had a lot more success and the enterprise person struggled. And we just chased that. We chased the mid-market sales and we kept getting bigger and bigger customers all the way until we built enough credibility to then go up market. But it was, you know, I, I sold the first dozen or so deals. And then after that brought in, you know, a couple of people to, to, to kind of experiment one of two ways with finding the right ICP. And I just served as a sales engineer for them until they got up and running. And then we kind of started scaling out that mid-market team. And, and so you started with, you couldn't really find qualified leads. Like what, what ultimately shifted into like, is this is, this is founder led sales. So you're going out, you're, you're leveraging your network, you're leveraging the people that, you know, obviously you founded this. How did you figure out like, Hey, this, we don't have these qualified leads. You're probably working stuff, but it's not qualified stuff. <sighs> I think, I think the challenge for us was we, we were inventing a new category. The product that we were in, bot detection and mitigation didn't exist, right? And I didn't have a large network at the time. Like I, I didn't have a deep, deep network. And so what I was doing is, you know, just making cold calls, sending cold emails, right? And what I didn't understand back then is that, you know, there are early adopters to, to new, new technologies and then there's the others, right? Like one out of 10, I think it's like 12% is, is, you know, kind of the, the, the estimate is like, is an early adopter to kind of new front, front leading tech. And so when I was reaching out to a bunch of people, 
I wasn't hitting those early adopters. So I wasn't getting any kind of positive signals back. The qualified leads, when I was able to hire, when we, what we actually did is hired a marketing person and she blasted you know, the universe with like, you know, mass emails and mass campaigns. And what ended up happening is the hand raisers, the ones that came in and raised their hands, were those early adopters that felt the pain, the need. So because I didn't know enough back then to say, what is my ICP? How do I, you know, what does that persona look like? How do I find that repetitive persona? I just knew that like every company kind of should buy our product that has a web presence, but I didn't really like nail that down. The marketing blast actually served as a kind of self-selection channel and we were the only game in town. So it was like, it was like shooting fish in a barrel once those hand raisers came in. So you, so you, what you started with a hypothesis of what a customer could be created that list for marketing, blasted it out and whoever kind of self-selected in, that's where you first got started. And then you look at it and go, are you doing some kind of an analysis on those customers that say, Hey, let's go find more of these. Or, you know, when you're, when you're saying outbound didn't initially work and you didn't really know your ICP, how'd you go from that into that, into, wait a minute, all of a sudden this is starting to get some traction. Yeah. So what, what we actually saw that our use case started changing, our value proposition started changing, our messaging started changing and our target customer started changing, right? We actually didn't even, we didn't even, we weren't, we were so unsophisticated. We didn't even have a hypothesis on the type of customer when we like narrowed down marketing. We actually just blasted 50,000 tech buyers. Like that, that's what it was. It was just like spray and pray. And luckily that was it because what ended up happening is we thought digital content makers were going to be the ones that didn't want bots scraping their content. What actually turned out to be the case was that e-commerce was worried about fraud. You know, brute force account takeover was a big thing. Like there was a lot of other use cases that we actually evolved into. And that's, that's how we then said, okay, here's the right buyer. Now rinse and repeat that with the right messaging and the right persona. So it's a little bit of a happy, lucky mistake, oh, yeah. and, but also learning. I mean, you're, you're looking at what you're doing. Do you have any type of like consistent analysis that you and the team set up to say, Hey, every week, every month, every quarter, let's look back at what we're doing to say, these are the type of customers and this is the messaging that works and this is the channel that works. And is there any of that that was a little bit more formal beyond that initial spray and pray email? Yeah, I think we I think we re reevaluated probably about once a year as we were doing planning, as we were doing budgeting, as we were thinking about scaling it up. It it worked so well because again there was pent up demand and we were the only game in town. So early on, it was just like, hey, this is working. How fast can we keep up with it? Yeah. Right? Like we went from when when those you know, that one sales leader started and he had success. We hired two people under him. Then within the next year, he had 13, you know, 13 headcount. Like it was just like skyrocket. So we didn't even have to reevaluate. It was just keep doing more of the same. And then, you know, as we continued to plan, we would look back and say, okay, here's this and let's, let's plan ahead. So it was about a yearly cadence. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So when you start to get into, you hire these two people, let's talk a little bit about that. Cause a, a huge topic that I hear a lot or a, lot, a question that I get pretty often is, is I'm founder led sales. Who is the person that I'm supposed to hire? Who are the people that I'm supposed to hire 
those initial non-founder-led salespeople to take it. It's should I hire a VP of sales? Should I hire a you know young kid who can just like work a million hours a day? Like, what is the profile that you looked at to be able to say, hey, I'm going to go after mid-market. I'm going to go after enterprise. I have a really opinionated position on this based off of you know my experience in working with salespeople. I don't think hiring somebody that has been just a sales leader for the past while is the right first choice. So like hiring a VP of sales, I think that's, that's, the, wrong, that's the wrong choice. But hiring somebody too in their career also I think is a mistake, right? If you hire the kid that's gonna work 80 hours a week, they're just not gonna know the motions. What, what I try to find is somebody that either was recently moved out of management or moved into management and is willing to step back into it being an individual contributor or somebody that has the aspiration of being a manager but is currently an individual contributor, knows knows how to think a little bit more strategically, knows how to iterate, knows like has enough like like does does can be autonomous, doesn't need a lot of hand holding to to kind of rinse, repeat, iterate, change up what they're doing if it's not working. Because you as a founder have so many other things. Like what you want to do is make sure that like somebody you bring in somebody that can can you know do this on their own. And so finding that middle middle ground, and then putting the carrot out there to say like, hey, you you succeed, I will build a team under you. I will build a team to, for you to manage, and this is going to be the career change that you're looking for. This is going to be the fastest track to you becoming a VP of sales that you, you've ever seen. And, and by the way, at some point, I may have to bring in a more experienced leader, but you will at least have gotten the title. You will have built out a big sales team of at least you know, five to 10 people to, you know, through Series A, maybe through Series B and your career is made. So come in, bust your ass, and you find that highly motivated individual, and that's, that's to me the perfect, the perfect person to find. How are you finding this person? Is this network? Is this Indeed.com? Is this LinkedIn? Is this Ask Some Friends? Like, this is a, a semi-tough position to hire for. I mean, this is a make-or-break type of position for your company. Yeah, yeah, network is best. If you can do network, Awesome. You know, I'm, I'm blessed in that I have a bunch of people now that have worked for me, right? So I can like, I can throw a dart and, and hit like a, you know, a half dozen of those, those individuals. If it's not network, the person that I hired that like was my last, you know, person that became my VP of sales. And I've even hired somebody in the customer success in, in Finmark this way is I look at who's selling into me. I actually like, I, I get, if I get a good feeling about like somebody's outbound, like, like attempts at me through LinkedIn, through email, if they write a, like a really good email and they follow up once or twice, then I'll actually engage with them. And nine times out of 10, they're like, you know, they're, they're not happy. They're, you know, they want that step up. So I look at them and like the vendors that are selling you, I flip it around. I like that. I like that. So as a CEO, you're getting prospected into all the time. So might all as well use it as potential recruiting and deal flow essentially, or a recruiting pipeline for yourself and say, hey, I like what you're doing here. Let's actually hop on a call and turn around into a sales perspective that way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. They're always up for it. Like you're like, okay, let's talk. You talk and then you slowly shift it and you're like, hey, I have an opportunity. And like, yeah, it's, I, I've, I've done it. I've hired at least a half dozen salespeople this way in general. That's awesome. That's awesome. So when you, when you look at these two people that you hired, 
tell me a little bit about you, you, you go through the interview process, you pull the trigger and you're like, all right, I'm going to have these two people. One starts in mid-market, one starts in enterprise. You have been the leader of the sales team so far. You are now bringing these two people on. What does onboarding and training and helping them figure out what the heck they're actually supposed to do. What does that look like? You got a whole company that you're supposed to be running. Now you got to do everything that you've been doing plus figure out how to get these two people to sell. I, I mean, I think that's the piece that I, I slightly disagree with you in that. Um, and, and this is what I tell founders to start off doing is that you want to hire the sales when you're ready to hand it off. Right when you can think about the, what you're doing every day, what what pieces you're doing, and you can take some piece of it and say, if I hire somebody, I can give them this component. It could just be, hey, I'm sending ten emails a day to pro prospects. Let me at least like I know what prospects that, that like how I'm going about it, how I'm sending those emails, what I'm saying in those emails. I figured out what I'm doing, and I have something that I can take off of my plate and in a day sit down with somebody and say, here, now this is your job. This part is your job. I would ideally, it's more than just sending the emails. It's sending the emails, qualifying the person, getting them doing an initial presentation if you, you know, to get them to all the way to qualified. If you can hand off, you don't have to hand off the entire sales funnel, but if you can hand off that part, then they can scale it up. You're spending five hours a week doing it because you have a bunch of other things. Now I just got five hours a week back in my day and they have a playbook that they can do. They can do 8x more than I could, right? And so once you've programized, once you know exactly here's the playbook that I'm going to hand you – then it's it's easy, right? Like it's just it's just it's just a handoff, and you can train them in, in in a day or two. So, the underlying assumption that you're making though is there's a playbook. So based on what you're saying, that means that you've done a good job of document documenting what you've done, what you've said, what does the process look like? Maybe CRM set up. You have some recorded calls, a prospect or customer calls. Like what is this what does this playbook look like that you can essentially get them ramped up pretty quickly? Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly it. I I I think you know it, ideally you write things down. You figured out what the steps are in the funnel, what your goals are on moving people in because you like moving from step to step, right? So here's the initial step. This is step one. Dot, you know you write that down. That you should have your sales, you know your CRM set up like before you hire salespeople. They're not you don't want salespeople mess building up like a, a you know a CRM that's just a nightmare right like so you out you have your CRM you outline you know the steps to go you know in the pipeline you you know have a couple pieces of collateral or the messaging ready to go you, yeah. you've iterated all of those things you figured enough of those things out that you can hand it off those are those are the big ones and then you know if you don't have everything fully documented okay, like if you don't have, you know, a call calls recorded, ideally you have a couple, but if you don't, then maybe you do it side by side for a week, right? You work with them side by side for a week or two, have them shadow what you're doing and then, you know, go out and do it and then come back with questions the next day and shadow some more. And then, and then you flip it to you shadowing them versus them shadowing you at yeah. some point when you feel comfortable. So you could, you know, you don't have to get, I, I, I one when people, when founders here document, I think especially founders that have come out of big company, sometimes they go over the top and documenting and like, you know, writing things out. Like you want to find the right balance. You want to have enough that they can understand it, but you don't want it to be a time suck. Yep. So person's on board. You got two people on board. 
doing a little bit of training, doing a little bit. You got you got your playbook. Based on based on what you're saying is is these people know how to sell, or at least have a pretty good foundation for selling. So when you point one person at Midmark and you point one person at at Enterprise, you are not teaching them the basics about how to write emails and how to make cold calls no. and how to build relationships. You are essentially saying, here's the playbook of what I know works as far as finding and closing deals. Here's our pain points and our problems that we're looking for. These are our value props. Maybe some common objections you might hear, use cases. Go get them. Like, yeah. let's go. And yeah. so how how much are you involved once they're post two, two three weeks out? Like, are you... What 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 does your weekly cadence look like at that point? Yeah, so it, it, I think it's going to be dependent on the type of company, the type of sale. For Distill, we really it was a technical sale, and so the right long term cadence was salesperson. Then you get technical enough, and you bring in a sales engineer. And so early on, what I did is I transitioned from playing the salesperson role to playing the sales engineer role, right? Like when you're the founder, you do it all. You can right. speak the technical lingo and you can do the sales or might be able to do the sales. But in the, you know, in the next step, I just transitioned to being the sales engineer. So they bring me in when the conversation got technical, when the lead is qualified, that gave me some checkpoints, right? To know, are they bringing qualified leads? Do they get that this is qualified or not? Or are they just wasting time with unqualified things? That's a really easy place to like measure. How good is this? How many leads are they getting? Right. Like, am I am I being kept busy enough where we're getting enough leads to know that like one in four, one in five might close that kind of thing. Then what it also allowed me to do is then step out, let them drive it towards, a, you know, contracting and, and legal and finish, but come back in to be the deal saver, to be the pot sweetener, to be the, you know, to kind of they could be the bad guy or they could pit meat as the bad guy or they could, you know, you could play off of it, off of that, right? You're not, it's not one-to-one. -one. So I could either be the, the hero to come in and be like, okay, you know, I don't give the salesperson this authority, but I'll give you an extra discount. So like it gives you, it gives you kind of a one arm's length removed. No, I think, I think it's a crucial move that I actually don't think a lot of people play the CEO card. I mean, in, in this specific case, if you have the CEO acting as your sales engineer and then ultimately just as CEO, I don't understand why these reps are getting into mid-market and enterprise-level deals and not playing their CEO. And that card is a huge, huge play to run, especially at mid to bottom of the funnel. Once you have it qualified, once you have some technical verifications and checkpoints down, like why not bring the CEO in and say... Hey, put your ego on the side. You want your commission, or do you, or, do you, or do you actually, you know, want to prove that you can do it on your own? Like one and actually can go hand in hand. So I, I think that's a a power move that is really a good takeaway because who doesn't want to talk to the CEO of the company? If you go into yeah. a meeting and the buyers are sitting there and you're like, hey, I brought my CEO, they're like, oh, I this this must be really important. We're a we're a big time customer to them to have a CEO come. Yeah, I think it, I, the one time I've heard salespeople worry about it is they think, oh, does it make us look too small? I think it's the opposite. Like a buyer knows how big or small you are. What, what it actually does is it gives them confidence to know, like, I know I'm betting on an early stage startup. However, I have the ear of the CEO. I can influence the product. I can, I feel more like a partner 
than just another salesperson. And that's a, a, a personalized touch that only startups can really give. And by the way, big enterprises do this. They just do it only with their million plus dollar customers, right? The CEO is flying out to talk to their biggest customers all the time. It, it happens up and down the value chain. So, so leverage it. I mean, I think that's a huge one. I mean, we talk a lot about in sales where it's, you know, show the value and be different than a salesperson and don't just, you know, try to convince them to buy, but really be a partner. This is a great way to actually show that when you're bringing in other players, so you can bring in other people in the company, but especially the CEO to come in and say how much you value that this company's business, game changing. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So. We now have two people on board. We're start. We're starting to go. Tell me a little bit about ramp for them. Tell me a little bit about their initial activities. Are you still having marketing drive in so that these guys are only working on qualified or trying to qualify opportunities? Are they are they hunting? Are they on their own and they got to go figure it out? Like what does that look like in the early stages? You know, I think I think I come from an old school thought on this, and and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I I don't. I don't want my salespeople just get, just like f picking up leads and 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 you know converting leads. I want my salespeople hunting. I feel like your your athletes that can hunt are just a stronger built athlete, right? Like they just they can go out and get more things done. So I try to keep it as a balance. I try to say 50% of your food is going to come from marketing and then I expect you to go hunt for for the other half of 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 what you eat. And I know there's, you know, there's a lot of great playbooks of like how to create SDRs to fill in, you know, the the funnel and you want your high quality people just closing. And I'm not saying my my process is right. I just think that that exercise of going out to hunt makes you makes you a little stronger, makes you less complacent, especially when leads may or may not come in all the time. You may not get the best quality of leads, like however it is, whether you're using an SDR campaign or a marketing campaign, I always say 50% is gonna be fed, 50% you have to hunt. And that's, that's their cadence is like, I wanted to keep them at 50-50. They're going out prospecting, hunting, figuring things out. And, and then we're just trying to pump them as many leads as possible. So let's talk a little bit about real quick around that marketing motion that you had. So you had two salespeople. What did, what did your marketing team look like and what were they mainly focused on? I, I mean, initially I had one marketing person. They were in, focused on demand gen. So early, or, early on, the easiest demand gen in my book is still email marketing. Sadly, it works. It like connects people. Like we all hate spam. I don't want to propagate more spam, but it, it works, right? Then you can do similar types of things with LinkedIn outbound, with you know, uh, social media. And, and you know, I, I recommend to people that they start content marketing early. You need good content to drive, you know, top of funnel. But like earlier, early on, it was just about finding hand raisers, right? Like focus on finding hand raisers. The investments in more top of funnel stuff is just investments to year two, one, year two, you know, down the line. It's not the now. The now, you have a year to survive as a company. You need to show growth. You want to find just the hand raisers. And so if you can't do both, focus on finding those hand raisers. So just to, to clarify, so when you say content marketing demand gen, are you saying that this person was creating content, you have your email list, and then there's outbound sending this content to these target profiles that say, hey, we're a category creator, so we got to essentially create all this awareness because nobody's Googling any of this, right? Nobody's, nobody's getting online and searching for this. So it's 
literally creating content that talks about these problems, that talks about the solutions, and either driving a response back or driving them to the website. Is that right? That's that's exactly it. And and so the difference, but I, what and what I mean from you know the top of funnel versus hand raisers. What I'm saying is like you can create content that's like, hey, here's the problem, here's our solution, yeah. or you can create content of. Here's how this problem might be impacting you. Do you know you don't you don't know that you have this problem, but, but let me make you more aware generally about this problem. So that's like educating them about the problem versus saying, "Hey, I have a solution that solves this problem for you." Do you know that you have a problem? And you're looking for the ones that say, "I I know I have this problem. I have this problem. Let me you know I'm glad that there's a solution." And they click right through. That's huge. So when you think about it. You, uh, you started doing outbound marketing. You got a bunch of these hand raisers. Now you got a two-person sales team who is doing some outbound. And when you think naturally industry-wise, when you think of mid-market and you think of enterprise, you're thinking three to six-month minimum sales cycles, upwards of 12 to 18-month sales cycles. Like when you talk about, hey, I, I, I have a year to kind of get some of these results. I need to get some traction. I need some cash in the bank. What does that look like? How do you how do you actually can go from hey I got some hand raisers to I got qualified leads I got an outbound sales team like how much ramp time did you give these guys and and how did you know that it was working right away from that perspective? I mean it took you know the hand raisers move a little bit faster right and especially in mid market for us it was mid market so um, for us we got we were we were doing like two to three month sales cycles up front. And so we, we had, you know, and I gave them that long to kind of feel it out, to see it. But then like the deals started coming in quickly and they were, you know, the funnel kept getting, the pipeline kept getting bigger and bigger. And so by, by six to nine months in, I had a good sense that the, the mid market motion was working. Good. And can you pinpoint exactly, was it a combination of email, LinkedIn, cold call, was it like doing events? Like what was the thing that really started to generate that machine? Because you're looking at the leads. So you're looking at your dashboards and your KPIs and say, hey, qualified leads ticking up, closed yeah. deals ticking up, pipeline like in general is getting fatter and fatter and fatter. Like outside of just a straight number, like what was it? What is the strategy or the tactic that worked to actually generate that like consistently? So, I mean, I think it's adapting now. I think it's changing. But for us back then, this was... 2013, right? 2013, more people were at their desk. So phone calls still worked really well. I think there's an adversity right now or like some friction of calling somebody's cell phone, right? Not as many people have desk phones. And so like you can get people's cell phones, but if somebody calls me on my cell to, as a sales call, I'm already turned off versus when they call my desk, it's a little bit different. Like right. I know this is my business number. Emails and LinkedIn direct messages were the other two avenues that, that really worked. Again, for, for hand raisers to find those qualified hand raisers that like have this problem and you make it short and sweet. We, you know, here, if you have this problem, here's our solution, here's our value prop, and you, you get those, right? Then, then what you want to do as, as you want to scale that up is you then, you know, eventually you'll need your marketing campaign to, you know, to, to create awareness campaigns, to create, you know, top of funnel people that are interested in following your blog, following, you know, downloading a white paper about the subject that aren't really raising their hand and saying, I want to buy this product. They're just trying to learn more about the, the, the industry, the space, the solution, you know, the, the, the problem, et cetera. And you start creating some more top of funnel stuff that you nurture until they do enough 
that you can say, hey, this now seems qualified. Yep, that's huge. What were the what were the KPIs, or what what were you using as measurements to say this is working? Closed deals. I mean, I, at that time, at that time, it was it was when I looked at the you know I had two salespeople, one for enterprise, one for the mid market. And by the way, I don't recommend that. Like, pick one. Like, make sure you focus on one. Don't 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 try I'm to come back to that. I like that. Yeah. But well, so I'll let you come back to that when, when we're ready. But but in, in that mid market when it was working, I took the run rate over the past three months of that person. How many deals are closed? If I and then I said, hey, if this keeps out, like the pipeline's growing, if I take his run rate over the past three months and project that out to a year, what would he what would he be closing? Okay, he'd be closing about three quarters of a million dollars. This is working. This is that's enough of a quota that I can go and you know instead of him doing it, let me go get two people under him or three people under him doing it, so that him and his you know his three salespeople can then you know rinse and repeat, and I can go from you know a quota capacity of you know just under a million dollars to a quota capacity of like two and a half million dollars. And so and and so you're measuring this. So you have two people now. So you got a mid market and you got an enterprise rep. And walk us through a little bit about what was the reasoning behind that split? And then how did you come back together? So we knew that for us, we knew that both small companies, mid-market companies and enterprises could be potential buyers. We, we wanted to be an enterprise, but we weren't having a lot of success. So we, we, wanted, we tried to buy for and I, I knew I knew enough to say that the motion is different. Right, like an enterprise sales motion is a little bit different than an inside sales, you know, mid-market play. Right, and so I hired slightly different types of salespeople. Right, like I hired one that was used to going after enterprise, one that was used to going after the mid-market. I, you know, I gave the enterprise person a lot more leniency in terms of cadence of outreach. You know, because I was watching that. I was watching how many, you know, calls, how many emails, how much, you know, how many demos are we doing, all of that. I gave the enterprise person more leniency, knowing that it would be harder to break into enterprises. I gave them more rope to say, you know, like, you're not you're not closing deals yet, but I know these deals take longer. So I just tried to, I, I just gave them a lot more space. It still didn't work, the whole, like the whole freaking time. Like, we, we let it run for a year and a half. It didn't work. After that year and a half, we actually then rolled them under that other person and gave him a team to, to run under that other person, right? And so that that's the, the progression. We ended up having to jettison that for a couple of years. We actually came back to it as, as we got more mature as a company. We came back to it four years later and then built out an enterprise sales team again, and it had some success at that point. So you got so you, you dial it in from you, you split a little bit from a, hey let's figure out where we can get some product market fit channel product ma- channel product product market fit to hey we got all these different places let's hone it in just mid market we know it's working you got one rep who's really having some good success adding to the pipeline understanding some pr- messaging all having some success on these close one deals you look at it and say hey this is working so. While you still have your enterprise rep, you hire some people under this mid-market person, and then about a year and a half later, you bring that enterprise rep in under the mid-market person. Is that how it kind of worked? Yeah, yeah. So how did what, what now that we're there, tell me a little bit about what did those first couple of hires look like when you said, hey, this mid-market guy is doing a pretty good job. Let's invest here. 
who are the people that you're starting to build out that team now? Because you so, got you got a marketing person and you got one person who's essentially on mid market. Then yeah. what happens? So we hire, now you hire the individual contributors, and you you know start. We started off with, hey, you. I just pulled you from your sales organization. Do you know anybody else that was like, who are your friends that that are high caliber, right? And so he he actually reached out to a couple of buddies of his that were high caliber, and and you know his first, I think. The first four people that we hired were from his network until from from his last and one of them had left his last job, but three three of them were still there. One of them was at his last job, had left. Those four people came in from his last job until we got a nasty gram from them that says, "Hey, like stop, stop it! Like you've signed a non-solicit, stop it!" And when we did that, then we had to go broaden our you know <laughs> our scope. But like, we wondered where we could. <laughs> I like it. Do an ask for forgiveness. So that means that your initial mid-market sales guy, is that turning into the sales leader? Yeah. That, that, and, and I hired him because I gave him, remember I gave him that carrot. I said, Hey, you're going to be, I'm going to build a team under you. And, and, and yeah, he became the sales leader. That's awesome. I made him a director of sales at that point, And then I, and then he, you know, a year or two later, we made him VP of sales. So all of a sudden mid market starting to work. And then, what, like, kind of take us through that story. Is it just you, you doubled down on mid-market and you stayed in that space for months, years? Is that you just kind of, like, squeezed out that channel and that, that area as much as you could? Yeah, we stayed there. And then, naturally, what ended up happening over time is some of the more s senior reps that had been doing this a couple of years were, you know, chasing bigger and bigger deals, right? It, like, the there was no cap on like the bigger the organization, the more that they're going to pay us. We had a volumetric based pricing list. So for them, you know, like if I'm going to spend time with a customer, do I want a thousand dollar a month customer? Or do I want a $20,000 a month customer? So they kept going after bigger and bigger deals. And we started winning some enterprise sized deals that were six and even seven figures with through an inside sales motion. Like we, it just, it just started happening naturally. And then we said, okay, let's, at this point, let's bifurcate and let's, you know, very specifically go after enterprise. So your mid-market team just slowly started to kind of creep into enterprise. You yeah. started to see that and you're like, all right, let's make this an actual, let's split the team. How many people was your mid-market team before you split it off? Probably like 20 something. All right. And what, what, before you split it off, what did the actual go-to-market team look like? So you had a complete outbound team or full cycle sales reps. You have one manager, two managers. I, I kept about a cadence of about six to eight people per manager. Why is that? So I don't know. I mean, it, it felt like the right, the right balance. I want somebody that can like meet with all of their team members, but somebody that also the man, this was probably a little bit of it. It was a mistake, but we ended up having our managers kind of help close as well. Right. So they were kind of a player coach. They, they came in. I say it's kind of a mistake because what it does is like, it really linchpins you. Like it creates single points of failure across the scalability of the org. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there were some detriments to doing that, but, um, so, so yeah, six to eight people per manager is what we did. And we had the VP that, that, you know, was above all of the, the managers. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, we hear that a lot, especially in a lot of the things that I do as far as just working with companies. And it's like, oh, if you have that, if you have the one person who's the closer, bottlenecks you. Yeah. It's tough. It, it, you know, I, 
I think the my my favorite advice of all time is you know comes from you know Warren Buffett and you know he says like you know build a company that an idiot can run and I think that's that that's like very pointed feedback for just building a sales org right like you want it to be self sufficient you don't want it reliant on any person any one thing each person should be able to like beginning to end close right so yeah I, I I've learned from that mistake the other the, to come back to your original question the other piece of it was we had SDRs and so SDRs would kind of help fill some of those leads so how long into the journey did you start to hire SDRs it was several years in, several years in. When marketing no longer could keep up with giving enough leads to keep it 50-50, then we hired SDRs. Okay. And we treated it like a marketing function, not like as a part of the sales function. They actually reported into marketing. Interesting. Man, I wish we had some more time. I want to dive into that a ton. We're going to have you back on, absolutely. You got time for a few more? I know. I, yeah, I can go a couple minutes over. I do right, have a All right, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap this up with a, with a couple of last minute questions. So besides, besides me, who, what, what would you say is the best timely sales advice that, that you got? Man, I should have. You're, you're not allowed to say anything that I've ever shared with you. Well, no, I, I, I should have just saved the, the, the Warren Buffett quote. I know that's why I said it now. Yeah. You know, actually a sales leader that, that I, that I tried to hire and, and he ended up going to a competitor of mine later on, you know, one of my favorite things about his mentality and, and a, a quote that I'll, I'll, I'll give to him is that John said, you know, no matter anything else, like I'm signing up because I know I can get this done. Once I say I can get this done, I'm not going to make any excuses. And I, and he pushes that down to his team. He's like, I know there's actually going to be a lot of things that are going to come up in the way. You're telling me the product's great. I'm going to assume the product's crap. You're telling me that there's leads coming in. I'm going to assume that there's no leads. I'm taking this job knowing that None of the things that you're thinking that none of the things that you're telling me are true. I want to have conviction that I can do this single handedly with, you know, owning it soup to nuts. If I can do that, then everything else is gravy. And that's the mentality that he has coming into any role. And he instills that mentality into his people. And it just drives you because when, you know, the salesperson's like, oh, I didn't get enough leads. I don't have enough. That it's like, I didn't hire you to come closely. I hired you because you can do this. Like I, no excuses, no excuses. If you're not getting what you need, just then go make it happen yourself. And I love that. I love that, that, that just, you know, can win attitude. That's awesome. Well, let me flip it around. Looking back at everything that, that, that happened, is there anything that you would do differently that you would advise yourself? Hey, I should look out for this challenge or I should look out for this obstacle and I would handle that differently. Yeah, we actually hit a, a, a scaling roadblock with Distill in that we grew so quick and competitors came into our space and made our sales cycle a lot less efficient. And we overscaled, we were overspending on sales and had to lay off. And the thing that I didn't understand that I should have kept a better, better handle on is, you know, your salespeople are your engine, but I should have been keeping better track of, you know, how many leads are coming in and how many deals are clo being closed from the leads. What is the fuel that's driving the sales engine? You know, I talk about that 50-50 split. I wanted that mentally, but I didn't know that not every lead was was made equal. I didn't understand. We didn't we didn't measure it in the right ways. And so over time, we were kind of running the, the engine lean, right? It didn't have enough fuel to keep it going and and so what when I was blaming bad salespeople 
Like it was really, you know, lack of product market fit. It was competitive landscape. It was lack of leads. It was a bunch of other things that we should have been also tracking to understand that it was a compounding problem. Symptoms versus problems right there. Yeah. Symptoms versus problems. Awesome. Got a couple of last minute questions real quick, kind of a sub 60 seconds. Favorite book or resource that you recommend to founders who are at the beginning stages of scaling? I, I, you know, I go back to this. It's oldie. It's an oldie, but like, but a great one. Crossing the chasm, understanding that that like when you're in a new space, when you're in a new market, like you who who to target, how to find those early adopters, how to think about that, and then when, as you're getting into the early majority, how does that open you up? What like that's the point that you know you want to punch it. When you get into kind of the early majority and you get past the early adopters, that's when you can scale things up. If you try to scale things up too early, there's just not going to be the market, the addressable market there. And if you, you know, get, miss that window and you're kind of going to the, the late adopters, then know that there's going to be slower sales cycles. It's going to be more about pricing and you're going to have to create more differentiation. There's just a lot of things, a lot of lessons in there that just, you know, even though the book's like 30 years old, it's just, I think, a must read. It is a fantastic one. All right, I am. I've read it a couple of years ago. I need to. I need to get back and, and reread it again. There's a lot of good stuff. Anything else that you want to share, or any last remaining tips or tricks, advice that that you can share with the audience? So, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that I didn't keep track of my metrics. I didn't understand the th the fuel that drove you know my engine or that fed my engine. That's part of why I actually left you know started finmark my, the, the the you know the company that the third company here finmark is financial planning software for startups where we help you understand your metrics we understand your drivers we help you make sure that you're keeping track of you know what the what your revenue projections look like and what your expense projections look like based off of actual data right and and i, I i'm a big big believer in that you should be tracking all of this stuff right you might be able to do it in some in salesforce but i really recommend you know, not just doing it in Salesforce, like having one consolidated view, soup to nuts from the leads coming in, the cost that you're spending per lead all the way down to a completed picture of, you know, how revenue is going to come up. And then how does that scale, right? For every salesperson you add, how many more things? Like all of that needs to be intertwined into one, you know, one, one, one picture, if you will. And, and that's what Finmark helps you do. I mean, it's, it's understand the health of your business and understand all the different sectors of your business. It's really hard to be able to identify the areas to improve or to fix if you don't, you don't actually know where they're at. Last question. How do we, how do we get more of you? How do we find you? How, how, how do we learn more, more from Rami? So I, I, I'm a contributor on TechCrunch, Forbes, and a couple of other places. The best place to follow where, you know, all my latest writings and blog posts is just follow me at, at Rami Assad on Twitter and, or follow me on LinkedIn. And I, I repost everything I write in different places across those different, uh, across those different platforms. Rami, thanks so much for being here, man. I really appreciate it. We so have great to have you on. There's a lot more to jam on. I feel like I feel like we don't have enough time. We could probably talk for hours on this stuff. I know. I know. It's surprised that we, we you know, it, it flew by. I appreciate the time. We'll see you All right, brother. Time. All right, man. Have a happy holidays. You too. See ya. Okay. Bye. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.